tradition can trace its origins back to the, the Lord Buddha himself in India 2,548 years ago. <coughs> and so we use this <coughs> Pali language and the kind of formulas and the, the uh, statements that were made at that time in what we would consider ancient India. And it's very interesting when you're in a tradition coming from a, a country myself which doesn't have very, hasn't a very long tradition. <laughs> and I think as, a, as an American I used to you know, we are kind of brought up with this <coughs> attitude of everything's in the future and modern life and everything will get better and what was in ancient times is, is uh, inferior to modern ideals and attitudes. <coughs> so there's kind of a conceit that, that comes from, say, modern education, the materialism in modern science that's very much part of one's cultural conditioning. But having uh, lived within this tradition as 40 years of uh, monastic life, uh, 11 years in Thailand, and then the rest here in England, so the, uh, I had plenty of time to reflect and consider this. And then coming to live here in, in, in the UK, which <coughs> is not a traditionally Buddhist country, as you well know. So from Thailand, it's <coughs> very much uh, <coughs> a part of a whole cultural uh, mindset, way of looking. Buddhism is kind of is a basis of Thai culture. So in Thailand, you can see the tradition working in a, in a country that <coughs> has uh, more or less developed its cultural ideals and attitudes from the teachings of the Lord Buddha. And then coming to live in uh, a non-Buddhist country where uh, you wonder, uh, you still have grave doubts about how one could survive as a traditional bhikkhu Buddhist monk uh, in the in a country that is not Buddhist, <coughs> but this is uh, nearly thirty years of living here with no problems other than the ones I might make. I can create problems, but I can't really, you know, blame it on the society or the or the uh, place I'm living in. Now, the, what we call the holy life, when, when people go for the Bapa Cha that uh, Anagarika Liz will take, is called going forth. And this, this is significant because it, it's, uh, it conveys this sense of, of uh, leaving behind the, 
the uh, worldly ways and the attitudes and assumptions uh, of uh, a lay person into the uh, traditional form of um, Theravada Buddhism as an alms mendicant, the samana, so dependent on alms is the basis of our lives, make ourselves, uh, say, poverty-stricken. We are, we are, we live in poverty, <laughs> which has its own irony, because I've never lived so well. <laughs> but then the alms mendicant is an act of faith, because you're, you're going into the unknown. When you go forth, you're going in, you know, the attitude is going forth, not looking back. When you go forth into the holy life, then the, the attitude is, to, is not to look back and long for the things in the holy life, but to cultivate those, the uh, lay life, to, but to cultivate the attitudes and that that help support the uh, monastic life. So the four requisites, uh, this is uh, the, the alms food, the uh, robes, shelter for the night, medicine for illness. These are called the four supports, the four requisites. And uh, this, if, if developed and contemplated in your life, then it, it leads towards a contentment. And contentment is a, is a, a state of mind that doesn't come easily to people that are brought up in a society where you're not supposed to be content. Like I was brought up in the attitude of don't be content. You can always make things better. <clears throat> and being content, you know, sounded like being a bit stupid. And um, like a cow, you know, the contented cow chewing grass. And so you had to have a you know, shortage of brains or something to be able to be contented. But this, is, this isn't a, a contentment that comes through passivity, but it's, it's reflecting and, and learning to use your intuitive sense to observe discontentment. Just because you become a summoner doesn't mean that you're automatically content uh, with the four requisites and the place you're living in with the food and the robes and medicine and so forth, other tradition. In fact, most of us have, you know, we're not content at all. <coughs> because our nature, our habit tendencies, we're always moving towards discontentment. But this is, uh, in the teaching of the Lord Buddha, this awareness practice is to be aware of discontentment. So you get to know it as, a, as an attitude, a desire, uh, a habit tendency in which you, you know, you can always think of, uh, think of on the material level or the social level or whatever is a, a better place, better food, better friends, better climate, better this, better that. So the, the four requisites are based on very kind of basic things like uh, uh, rag robes or uh, alms food, people, the food that people put into your bowl. You, know, they, you don't have much choice about what you're going to eat or, or uh, you wear these robes and the original allowance was uh, rags. And you could, no, if you didn't have any cloth, you could collect uh, rags from that were, you know, cloth thrown away by the society. They even have like bungsakula cloth, they call it, where you you go in uh, charnel grounds and things like this, pick up uh, the cloth that that has been on corpses and and, and uh, other grisly uh, perceptions of this nature, which I've never had to do in 40 years. Uh, it's never been a problem because of the, uh, the people, generosity of the people always offering cloth. But the reflective capacity has always been on the, on the basic allowance. The rag robe, the, 
the shelter for the night, root of a tree, or uh, alms food, or medicine for illness. The medicine listed in the ancient India is fermented urine. And so that is pretty shocking to people when they find out that that's, um, that's medicine. Because I was brought up to think that it was um, something that would make you sick. <laughs> so, so it's, uh, in, in, uh, this is interesting because it points to uh, uh, a natural way of life that was lived in India uh, at that time. Trinal grounds, we don't have them here. And uh, so we don't have to go into, we can go to Oxfam, probably that's the, the thing we're desperate, we can always. <laughs> but then we live in a time where there's an abundance of cloth, where imagine at the time of the Buddha that cloth had you know, it was woven and handwoven and so forth. So it was probably much more valued, more precious than it is now. So the aim then of the holy life, say, the most important thing, the advantages of monastic uh, commitment is, is really developing contentment. And this I, I stress over and over again because you know, I see how this is really uh, one, when you learn to be content, then you can really observe what the nature of desire. You can really, uh, you know, you're not, you're not spending your life always trying to improve the environment or the situation you're in or whatever, but you, you have uh, gratitude because uh, you're always offered requisites that are usually quite good quality. So contentment and gratitude are, are to, you know, to be cultivated. And this, uh, you know, in my own experience in Thailand, I was uh, living in the forest monastery there. Um, you know, I was certainly not content a lot of the time, but I began to observe. By observing discontentment, I began to see how, you know, just being caught into this, this way of thinking, these desires, these habits, these tendencies, was uh, a form of was suffering. Was a way even living the holy life was uh, a life of suffering, because you're always complaining. You can complain. You can uh, try to improve everything, trying to create a perfect monastery or perfect society. Or there's always ways that we can think of improving the place we're in the group we're living with. But uh, meditation never really goes very far until a level of contentment is, is realized. Because then the ability to notice this, these tendencies, these are very strong uh, conditioned tendencies that we acquire. So in the monastic life, for example, the, the uh, gratitude uh, is a, comes from contentment. And gratitude then is a kind of uh, a joyfulness in the life because uh, we are the receivers of so many good things in, in, here in, in England or in Thailand. Uh, the generosity of the lay people, the the uh, the eagerness to support us, to to encourage us, to make things possible for us to to live this life. Uh, if one reflects on it, is one feels an enormous sense of gratitude, and this is a heartfelt feeling, like your heart opens up because you find a joyfulness from from this uh, gratitude and contentment. Then from this uh, foundation, then the meditative teachings and reflective teachings that the Lord Buddha gave us come to life. They become, you know, they're not just ideals or intellectual attitudes that we, that we can 
quote. We, you know, we're not quoting scriptures or talking in, uh, speaking in idealistic ways about Buddhism, but we're coming from a, a real inner peace and contentment where we can actually see the causes and the cessation of suffering, the arising and the ceasing of dukkha or suffering or discontentment. So today the uh, Venerable Tina Wangso and Namarako have uh, asked for this, this to be uh, given this opportunity and they've been, uh, I've known Namarako for, oh, he's one of the first friends I'm, I had here in, in England. And uh, so he's a uh, someone that I've known for many years and he, he had all kinds of other responsibilities which he doesn't have anymore and so he as soon as he completed his uh, sense of fulfilling his duties he uh, came into the Sangha so he was a, an Agarika I think for a year and has been a Samanera for about a year and now a Bhikkhu Now uh, the, uh, the the purpose of the holy life. What do we mean by holy life? You know, and it, these are inspiring terms <coughs> used, or we can use them sarcastically, because sometimes the life of a monk doesn't seem holy at all. You're caught up in meetings where people are picking away at this and worrying about that, and loving and hating and and uh, complaining and demanding and so forth. So, you, you know, one feels oftentimes uh, uh, that on, on some level it's not very holy. Because, uh, you know, for me the, uh, the concept of holy life is, is very high, very pure. But what the teaching of the Buddha is, is getting to a natural state of awareness, of pure being in which these mental states that we create in our minds that affect the, the community we're living in, we begin to notice them other than just blindly following, reacting to them, following them or repressing them, we begin to observe them and see uh, the pointlessness of attaching and being caught up endlessly in, a, in trying to solve all the problems in the world and the problems of the Sangha and problems of the individual. <laughs> because uh, that way it seems a hopeless, hopeless task. No, the world is very complicated uh, experience. I mean, having a human body and uh, a, sense, a sense body, you know, a sensitive having to live on this planet for a lifetime and even in uh, pleasant countries like this one uh, where you have a level of security and stability and safety still one can be totally miserable through just the way one thinks the way I, I might be thinking I can make myself totally depressed, angry or resentful now in the Buddha raising the uh, Four Noble Truths as a, as a kind of basic teaching, a, a, a way of reflecting on how we create the suffering, how I as an individual entity create suffering onto the present moment. Now as a person, a personality, I can I can, you know, I, I function in a very different way than when I'm from coming from the, the pure awareness. So the uh, Four Noble Truths is a, is a skillful means to use to begin to notice, begin to observe and realize this natural state that the Buddha was pointing to. So uh, awareness intuitive awareness, mindfulness, 
these kind of words are natural to to our human state. These are not created. This is not a creation, not a special kind of samadhi practice of uh, refinement, but of opening, recognizing, realizing the true nature or the Dhamma. So and when we use the word Dhamma, we translate that into English as the true nature of the way it is. Now when we, when we haven't realized the Dhamma, then we live in a, an artificial world, the world that we create out of our views, opinions, loves, hates, preferences, prejudices, our conditioning. So you can see why uh, the world is the way it is on the international scale. It seems, you know, like with terrorism and and all the problems around religion, Islam and Judaism, Christianity, the, the envy, the resentments, the prejudices that arise, these are creations out of the human, out of the ignorant human mind. In the Buddhist world, we can, we can create endless problems, views, strong views about Buddhism, and, and if we just hold to Buddhism on, on the level of tradition, and, and our particular group, then we can also, uh, we're caught in the same problem, the same worldly uh, attitudes will arise, and be very divisive, prejudiced, insensitive to anything that doesn't fit into our way of doing, our way of thinking. But the, what I've found in my own experience is, is uh, getting beyond that, so that I'm not just a, another Buddhist monk who's uh, taking it all very personally and still caught in, in the convention without uh, being able to get any perspective any real understanding of the Dhamma or the way things really are. So the conventional world or the world that we create is, uh, is you know, we have retentive memory, we have, uh, we have cultural conditioning, we have a sense of our own separateness, our personality, our individuality, um, we think, thinking itself is a divisive condition. Because just notice the thinking process, how it actually works. It's, it's, it's something we create. I create into the moment. And that always makes, makes me as very, someone very separate from you. For me to, to work to, to operate on a personal level, then I'm actually creating a division. So that there's me, I'm Ajahn Sumedho, I'm up here on the high seat, wise old guy, telling you all about how you should live your life. <laughs> and so I, and this is a divisive exercise, when we're just taking it on the level of, of words and concepts. You know, it's like being uh, upachaya, means I'm a preceptor, and I'm a senior monk, and uh, a maha, in, in, in uh, Theravada terms, mahatera, and one of the elder monks. And uh, all these, these, uh, these words give me a special give me a special quality on, on a personal level, don't they? You think of Ajahn Sumato, and then you, you see me as some point, something very separate. But when we begin to recognize and realize the awareness as our refuge, then this is where equality really is actually operates, because Awareness brings us to a oneness. It's not, and not rather than a division or a dualism. And the Buddha stated this, that through awareness, then this awareness is the gate to the deathless, or the way to 
step out to get beyond the divisiveness of our thoughts, our ignorance, our attachment. And it's not a suppression or denial or a judgment. It's not, you know, like it's, Buddha wasn't judging and criticizing and condemning the world or, or the society or anything like this. He, he cert- gave certain guidelines for worldly happiness based on generosity, on morality. So, you know, these are, these can be used mainly just for worldly success, for worldly happiness. If one is generous and, and responsible for one's actions, you're going to find, you're going to live a happier life. You won't make so many enemies. Uh, you won't get so depressed and so miserable because, uh, of course, generosity and, and that caring about others, not being selfish, uh, being responsible, not doing things that, that cause more division and more misery to oneself and others. Um, increases the quality of the worldly life to where we have a more peaceful, more happy, more harmonious lay life. Then the then the um, meditation is for liberation from the whole conditioned realm, which is not creating a division. We're not trying to get rid of or judging the conditioned realm is bad or the world is bad or it is, you know, thinking in terms of it, putting some kind of judgment onto it. But knowing the world is the world. If we aren't mindful, then we don't know that. We tend to create a world we, we totally believe in, even though it's an illusion. Though we live in, in a world of illusions, and we experience loneliness, separation, resentment, and all kinds of problems that arise from being depressed and angry. Life, uh, you know, ha- presents us with all kinds of situations that are unjust, unfair, shouldn't be. As well as sometimes life is very, good, you know, has a very positive, very fair, and we've had a pretty good uh, experience with life. But even at its best, it still leaves us in a state of separateness and, and a sense of loneliness or lack. That we need things. We need to have security or need to have someone else. Need to have, uh, you know, own our, our house, have money in the bank, have guarantees for, you know, our old age and and wanting all these kind of things will, will make us feel a little more safe, give us a, a sense of, well, you know, I'll be all right. Hopefully I have a pension, money in the bank, own my own house. I have a family that will take care of me when I get old. And then we think, but what if, you know, like pensions in this country, aren't they? A lot of... <laughs> A lot of problems around uh, people not being able to get their pensions now. If they've spent their life saving money for old age and it's gone. And then what's going to happen to me? So even the world at its best is fraught with dangers of loss. And we recognize that. Whatever we acquire, we, we inevitably lose. So the Buddha was pointing at this, that the conditioned realm is like this, its nature is like this. Its very nature is imperfect because it's changing. And change means that it it doesn't get better and then better and then better and better and better and better. Uh, Everything reaches a peak and then it goes the other way. So when I was young, I remember before I had very much experience with life, you know, I had a lot of, I was very idealistic, altruistic, and, uh, you know, had a lot of hopes that my life would just get better and better and better. 
And then by the time I was 30, it was, I was over the peak. It had gotten better and better, and then it suddenly started getting worse. What to do? I became a monk then. <laughs> 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 so even in monastic life, you have periods where it gets better and better, and then it gets worse and worse, because monasticism is a convention in itself. You know, its nature is changing. It's not meant to, to be just a prop or a crutch for stability, but an expedient means for reflecting and awakening and observing to, to realize the Dhamma or the deathless. Realize, to know reality, what is, what is that which is true, which when you give a name to it, it that uh, can be very deluding. It's uh, the, the Dhamma, when we say the word Dhamma, it's, it's to be realized, each one for ourselves. It can't, we can't define it really. Every attempt to, to, to define it more and more, describe it, makes it more complicated, more difficult. But, it is, but ultimately, the, if one is trusting awareness, everything moves towards simplicity. Every, the, the life, everything in your, your mind, everything becomes more and more simple. So, over 40 years now, I've become very simple. I'm a simpleton. <coughs> so I, haven't, I haven't become anything. You say, what have you you spent 40 years as a monk, what have you got for it? What is, uh, you know, what did you get out of it? Maybe, maybe you wasted your life. I was telling somebody the other day, you know, I could have been President of the United States. <laughs> <laughs> Missed my chance, gave up that, the, the ultimate success in the world to become a simpleton living in Hertfordshire <laughs> Hemel Hempstead which blew up this morning <laughs> but contemplate you know the, the, the thinking and, and the conditioned realm you know is a very leads towards increasing complications. Like a personality. When I look at my personality, it's very complicated. It's, uh, you know, because it, that's the way it is. It, it's full of memories, you know. So many memories now. At my age, you, you have a lot to remember. And, and uh, then the, the tendencies, the habits, uh, over a lifetime, you know, they, that you, uh, the things that you acquire when you're innocent child, in your adolescence, in your youth, and so forth, and and as you get older and older, the the uh, you know the the experience of life, of life, you have many more memories, many more experiences to remember, successes, failures, disappointments, disillusionment. So if, if I depended on my personality, then I would be, uh, you know, that, that is complicated. But with awareness, then you're, you're beginning to see the personality is really not what one is. Even though it says so, I don't believe it. Though in my personality, whatever it says, I don't believe it anymore. I know it's just force of habit and it has likes and dislikes and preferences and fears and desires. But knowing this personality, that which knows the personality is not personal. I can't claim it as some kind of individual achievement or my, something that is just mine that makes me separate or special from the rest of you. 
So the simplicity of oneness, isn't it? Oneness is simplicity. When you get two, then that gets, that's the beginning of complications. So you have, first you had Adam, and then Eve, and then everything became complicated. <laughs> and then Cain and Abel, and then, and then the whole New Old Testament starts operating, and you can see the result in modern Israel today. <laughs> that, uh, how, you know, endless, endless memories and resentments from way back when. You know, from, from attachments to, to perceptions and memories, racial memories, ethnic memories, cultural prejudices, biases that we acquire through conditioning. When we trust in awareness, then these, these kind of memories, we're not trying to, to judge them or to suppress them or deny them, but to put them in a perspective where we're no longer enslaved, bound and limited by, that, by those habits. And so that oneness is simplicity, non-separateness. Now when you try to figure this out, thinking about it, it becomes complicated again, because thinking complicates. Now this is where the Buddha pointed to mindfulness. His own emphasis, the uniqueness, the specialty of, of the Buddha, Buddha's teaching is the whole essence, the important word is mindfulness. Because this is the only opportunity any of us have to liberate ourselves from the complications of our personalities, our habits, the identity with the body, all the illusions we, we carry around and are reinforced by the society we live in. So, this uh, today is a day where... Um, Liz will go forth in a little while, <laughs> and Bhikkhu Chino Wangsu, Bhikkhu Damarako have have uh, you've seen you've been able to witness this this event. Now what they do with it is up to them. You can't can't make anyone realize truth. <coughs> I used to try. <laughs> I used to get exasperated with it. Can't you understand? And I remember one monk years ago shaking him and saying, Can't you understand? And he's never forgiven me. <laughs> he just thought I didn't like him, that was all. <laughs> He took it very personally. So I decided that's not the way to do it. You, know, you, can't, you can't kind of shake them and push them and sh shove it down their throats, force feed them. But you, you know, the thing to do is to create environments and opportunities. This is what, what monasteries can do. And here in, in England now, for example, we, you know, the monasteries we have here, they're opportunities that give occasion to hear the Dhamma, to practice. Uh, those that want to can make commitment to the traditional form. And that it gives the occasion and the opportunity. Now what we do with that opportunity is up to each one of us. So I was very fortunate in, in Thailand because I uh, found a very good teacher, Nung Po Cha, Ajahn Cha. And um, he was, um, I think, probably one of the greatest. I, c I could be biased. <laughs> I didn't really know any of the other teachers very well. <laughs> but uh, living with him for 10 years, it was... He was pointing at it. Like he was always 
encouraging me to look at what was actually going on in my mind. He wasn't a preacher. He wasn't kind of preaching at me and trying to force me to become something. Because uh, I would have resisted that. You know, that would have not been very helpful just to, to be kind of intimidated and pushed by someone else. But what I received there was given the occasion, the opportunity to hear the Dhamma, to practice it, and live in a way that, if I used it properly and skillfully, would support awareness, and which leads to contentment. That in, in, uh, when I look back at the early years with Ajahn Chah, I realize now, well, I wasn't quite aware of it at the time, that the whole way that he kind of lived in, in the monastic setting in Thailand was, the, was toward, always leading towards contentment. Like learning to use the monastic forms, the four requisites, the robes, the bowl, the, the, the um, vinyl, the um, poly teachings, and so forth. Not as things to cause more complications, more division, more problems. Because if we take these on, up on a personal level, they tend to increase personal problems. Trying to become, you know, a really good monk. Trying to, uh, you know, be the best monk. Or, the, or, you know, trying to make myself into something, into a saint, into trying to make myself pure as a personality, uh, trying to force myself into, into the mold of, of monastic idealism. All these, the, it isn't that I didn't do these things, but when I did them, the, there was always this encouragement to look at the result, what the result of what I did do. Did it lead toward contentment, towards peace, or did it, lead toward confusion, towards resentment, towards conceit. And so then this is a reflection. You know, you live, you, you're using this uh, form which is, is quite, it has, a, it has a very narrow boundaries. Being celibate, being uh, an alms mendicant, it really restricts a lot of activities and tendencies and habits. You have boundaries on behavior that I didn't have uh, such boundaries when I was a lay person. As a lay person, the boundaries were almost totally so broad that there weren't any. <laughs> it was the attitude of my generation was do what you feel like. It was a hedonistic kind of lifestyle. And in the monastic time, monasticism, Isan, it was all about restraint. And this was, this was not an easy, easy thing to adjust to. But it also, if used properly, I could begin to, I began to really see suffering, its causes, recognizing it for what it is, it ceases, realizing the Dhamma or the truth of the way it is, and then cultivating that within the conventional form of monastic life. Now, in my own experience, I've you know, it's been um, uh, the gratitude that I feel towards all of you and, uh, and uh, my life here in, in England, in Thailand, is a, it has, you know, it's a it's very grand feeling, sense of how, how fortunate a life I've had because I've had every opportunity given to me Everything that that helps and supports uh, 
on the conventional level has been offered to me in this life. And so it's, uh, you know, because of that, you know, a, a feeling of gratitude arises. And then the joy of the life, of, 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 of having the insight into the way it is, to free myself from the, from the niggling discontentment, the endless anxieties, self-consciousness, self-aversion, uh, fears, jealousies, envies, uh, resentments, all that made, made up my personality. All this can be seen and known. Uh, and once known and seen through awareness, then we no longer incline to attach, to believe, to commit ourselves to these conditions anymore. So in the, in the life of monastic life that I've led, it's, it's been the, the, that experience of increasing kind of relinquishment rather than attaining anything. So in uh, on Wednesday I'll be going to Thailand for a, a little over a month for Christmas <laughs> New Year's uh, but also, there's, uh, uh, I'm attending a funeral. Uh, Ajahn Mahasupong, who was one of the senior monks with Ajahn Chah, who I knew very well, was, uh, died last year, 75 years old. And uh, they're having a cremation ceremony for him on the 18th of this month uh, in Thailand. So I want to attend that. And then they're having a series of other meetings, monastic meetings and so forth, which uh, I will attend. But then uh, on the 20th of January, I'll be back and spend the winter's retreat at Chithurst. And so living at Chithurst this year has been very pleasant. And I hadn't lived at Chitters for 20 years, so um, going back there, you know, I'd, I'd, you know, I'd gone back and forth during that 20 years many times and hadn't actually lived there. And when I left Chitters, we, we, I'd lived there, I was a, we were there for five years, and, we, and during those five years it was a constant kind of work site, repairing that old house. Because Chitter's house was a complete derelict house when we arrived there. And five years of working trying to, to make it livable, by the five years, by the time it was livable, then I had to come up here and start again. <laughs> and I like to remember the first winter here uh, in 85, uh, it was memorable because well, the buildings, only the, this temple wasn't here then, but the, all these wooden buildings, they, were, they weren't insulated. And, uh, so, uh, and then they had a central heating system that was very expensive. We couldn't afford to use it. So we, we, uh, you know, we packed it up. And, uh, and that winter, we had the worst winter I've ever experienced in England. In fact, all over Europe, there was a freeze. Seems like the cold winds from Siberia blew over the whole of Europe and froze it. And up here on the hill, Amravati, it was really frozen. So everything was, was ice and snow and cold. And, and I remember walking, uh, doing meditation walking out in the, by the, what, where, what is called the office and library today. And in uh, the winter time, you know, when it gets dark early, and walking back and forth, cold and and uh, and you're kind of huddled up near an electric fire if you're lucky, 
We didn't even have many electric fires, so bhikkhus had to kind of, you know, use it for a while and give it to another one. And, uh, <laughs> and all the plumbing froze. Uh, this place, having been a school, it had all kinds of plumbing in it, all these toilets and, and sinks. And it all froze up. And uh, I remember thinking, life can't get worse than this. You know, even the lay people couldn't get here. The, the, the hill uh, up here was so icy, so slippery, the cars couldn't drive up the hill. But then, walking back and forth in the kind of um, yellowish light, kind of uh, jaundiced, yellow color of that light over there by the office in the dirty old snow and ice and then realizing that in my heart I was all right you know I was peaceful that I wasn't suffering that even uh, the physical discomfort was was all right you know it wasn't something that that made me want to leave or give up or blame it on anybody and that was quite an important uh, insight actually to, to be in a situation you know having left chitters which I was very fond of I got very attached to and then coming here to start over again and uh, not knowing what was going to happen here and then having this this uh, frozen frigid winter you know, there's so many negative factors involved in it. And yet, in spite of that, the power of the meditation was contentment. So this is, you know, it does have a, an increasingly profound effect. Even, even though sometimes in your practice you might feel you're not getting anywhere, or, you know, you've been practicing meditation now for many years and you still get angry and you still not, you still haven't reached the states that you think you should have by now. You can feel, oh, I can't meditate or I'm not very good at it. Don't believe any of that. And, you know, your mind will tell you anything. And uh, it's, it lies. You know, it's, it's based on, on all kinds of illusions, so you can't believe what you think. Uh, the only way out of that, then, is to begin to trust in the awareness. Because this is where you recognize and, and realize stillness, contentment, peacefulness, that is, uh, is not destroyed by the external condition can't be destroyed by the weather or the worldly conditions that, that happen to us. So I will stop here and we can prepare for this is going forward.